right, I'm so glad you've chosen to join me this morning because idolatry is mentioned over 200 times in the Bible, but yet we don't usually go to church and have a sermon series on idolatry, so we're going to tackle that this morning. I don't know why the pastors don't want to do that. Um, my hope this morning is that uh, to convince you that idolatry is still happening around us and in us, and my hope uh, is that today we'll be able to recognize it and then take biblical action against it. My name is Laura Shields. I'm one of the women's directors here at Hume. And back at home in Lodi, California, I'm also a biblical counselor. This morning we're going to be talking about God's plan to be your God. Hopefully everyone has a handout. If you need one, go ahead and put your hand up. We're going to talk about God's reaction to idolatry and the hope that we have, and how to identify and take action against idols in our own life. As we get started, there's going to be times where I'm going to ask you to come together with a partner. So I, I'd love for you to recognize that neighbor that's going to be your partner right now. It can be a stranger. It can be a friend. Look to your person. Say, yeah, you're my person for today. Good. Okay, that's good. That's good. I think we're all... Okay, okay. All right. We're so excited to have partners. Okay, as, as women trickle in, just adopt them into uh, the nearest group there, all right? Um, you guys are going to be fun this morning. Okay, I would love to be fully dependent on God. Uh, let me pray for us as we get started. God, be with my words. God, these are your people. What do you have for them this morning? It's not an accident that they're here. It's not an accident that um, you placed idolatry on my heart. Um, and even yesterday, discovering that in Colossians 3 that we're studying this weekend, idolatry is also mentioned there. And so, God, you're weaving a story together. Open our eyes to what you're doing. Um, be with my words. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start this morning with the good news that God wants to be your God. He wants to be close to you. So let's look at Genesis in the beginning to see how God intended to live with us. I'm going to read Genesis 2-7 and then Genesis 1-27. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, which we learned about last night, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God, who is creator, created man. God was close enough to breathe the breath of life into man. And then God blesses them and says, I've created everything that you would have dominion over it, and I've given you all the provisions of food that you need. The God of the Bible is good. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. God created man to worship, and we worship with our time, talent, and treasure. That means how much we do something, what we're actually doing, and how much money we put into it. The God of the Bible created us to worship 
him alone and be in his presence. Second Corinthians 5, 9 says, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Very simply, whatever we do with our time, talent, and treasure should ultimately reflect our aim to please God. Anything in our lives that gets more attention or affection than God can and will become an idol in our life. So there's this tension that we live in. We have a problem. God wants to be our God and make it our aim to please him because we've been created by him. But you and I live in a secular culture that's trying to do away with God. And at the same time, we're getting the constant message that you can do it on your own. It's up to you and your feelings and what you can accomplish. This morning, let's turn to Jeremiah 2.13. This will be one of our main passages this morning to study. Uh, Jeremiah is the prophet here. He's addressing the Israelites about idols. Uh, He does that throughout the book of Jeremiah. During the time of Jeremiah, the Israelites have been feeling the pressure of the outside empires of Egypt and Assyria, and eventually they will be held in captivity to Babylon. They are not a free people. They are surrounded by the idol worship of the polytheistic culture they live in, which is exactly what they experienced back in Egypt as slaves. So let's look at Jeremiah 2.13. It says this, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel is a people of the desert. What essential element do you need to live in the desert? Water, right. So the Israelites who Jeremiah is talking to, they understand the importance of water for life. Jeremiah also describes a cistern. What's a cistern? It's a large carving in the bedrock of the ground that can hold clean rainwater runoff. It doesn't rain often in the desert, so when it does, You want to make sure you can collect as much water as possible. This water is used for drinking, cleaning, and occasional sacrifices. But Jeremiah doesn't just mention cisterns. He's referring to broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the picture of you going to the faucet with a strainer, trying to fill it up to get a drink of water. Now that you have that image in your mind, that would seem foolish right? The Israelites understand what a, that a broken cistern is foolishness to them. Also notice that Jeremiah mentions two evils that are happening, two sins. The first evil is they've forsaken God, meaning God's people have forgotten or disregarded God as essential to their life, the giver of life itself. Remember Genesis? And the second evil is that they've hewn out broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people would rather give up on the creator and what he provides and figure out life for themselves by creating their own saviors, which aren't able to save, let alone satisfy them at all. To forsake God for idols is sinful. Let's go over to Exodus 32, where we're going to see Israel in the desert. So let's turn there. 
Looking at the Exodus account, God had freed his chosen people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt and takes them into the desert so that they can worship him. This is actually the reason that he gives Pharaoh to let his people go so that they can go and worship him. They're in the desert and God gives them the Ten Commandments. God and the Israelites make a covenant like a marriage and God says, I will be your God, and the people agree, and they say, sign us up. And the first of the Ten Commandments is what? Who knows it? You shall have no other gods before me. So right away we can observe God is serious about his fame and his worship for his people. Anything then that takes the place of God in fame or worship is an idol. That's what idolatry is. It might not be a visible idol like a statue today. It can be, but it could also be an idol of our heart. It could even be a good thing. Food, sex, family, love of country, pets, sleep. And keep in mind that in Jeremiah and Exodus, we're addressing God's people. People that agreed to be in covenant relationship with God. So if you're a believer in this room today, this is for us. And what we're going to see is that even as believers of Jesus, we fashion and carry our idols close to us and we use them frequently. Now the Israelites are in the wilderness at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Aaron, the brother of Moses, has been left in charge because Moses is back up on the mountain getting blueprints from God of how to build the tabernacle. Megan talked about the tabernacle last night. This was going to be a place where God's presence would be with and among his people, showing himself to be the same God as in Genesis. So let's see what the people are doing. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. What is happening in this text? Moses is talking to God while the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain. But Moses is delayed according to the people, which means they're in a state of waiting on God. And they can't wait any longer. So they give in to replacing God with something that looks like a God, something they would have been familiar with back in Egypt. Think of a time when you've been in a season of waiting on God. Waiting on God to provide with a different job. Waiting on healing. Waiting of dreams of being married. 
waiting on that court case to be settled. We wait so long that we start to forget that God's timing is perfect and that he's still thinking about us and that he's over all things. We forget God's character, that he's faithful and wants good for his people. And we turn to anything else in this world that will satisfy us in that moment. We commit two evils. We forsake God and we make broken cisterns. And we are deeply deceived. Here the Israelites turn to eating, drinking, and play, which in other text version means lewd or sexual acts. In our culture, we can definitely see sex, food, and alcohol as our main culture's idols. We're deceiving ourselves by grappling for control, joy, or comfort in these things besides God himself. We so often forget what it's like to have direct access to the fountain of living water in the desert of life. And in our desperation, we worship what we can see and touch rather than wait on God and his promises. So God sees what's going on. God knows all things, right? What is his response? If we kept on reading in Exodus 32, we would see that after the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, God's anger was against them, so much so that he wants to destroy them. Psalm 106, 19 to 23 sums it up like this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Skip down to verse 39. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. God's anger is the reality of how he views idolatry. Anything put in the place of him. The way he sees idolatry is that of a bride on her wedding day having taken her vows and sleeping with another man that night. God knows what will actually satisfy us in this life, which is him. And he has good things planned for his people if they would repent and keep his commandments. So how do we not commit the sin of forsaking God? Look at Psalm 106, um, 21. It says, they forgot God, their savior, who had done great things, wondrous works, and awesome deeds. They forgot God in their waiting. Ladies, don't we forget God? We forget his character, and we start to assume that he's like us. And we forget what great, wondrous, and awesome things that he's done. I want you to sit for a minute, start to think about some awesome things God has done in you, through you, or around you. Is it that he's given you a family full of saints who have discipled each generation? 
Is it that he's preserved your life when there's no way you should be here today? Or maybe it's a miracle baby that the church community prayed for and everybody knew, according to science, that this pregnancy wouldn't be possible. We're forgetful, so we need to renew our minds daily of who God is and remind each other of his character and remember the great things that he's done. Thank God in your prayers for his attributes. God, you are faithful. You are infinitely wise, sovereign. We need to be in God's word daily because our souls are weak and we need the reminder of who God is. This is also why we attend the local church, to gather with other believers so that we can remember who God is and turn our hearts back to worship him. So today, I said you'd have some interaction. This is going to be one of those moments. You're going to turn to your neighbor and recount any good thing that God has done in you, through you, or around you. Make sure that each of you has a chance to share, but I'll give you a few minutes to do that with each other right now. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, we're going to we're going to bring it back together, ladies. I hope you each had time to share. You're a lively bunch this morning. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and bring it back. If you didn't have time to share, I'm going to continue to move on for the sake of time. But if you didn't have a time to share, share when we're done. Share at lunch. Share on the way home. This is a really great practice for us as Christians to remember what God has done in our lives and what he's continuing to do around us. All right. God wants to be our God, but we have sinned, and now his anger is against us. So where do we place our hope? In conjunction with remembering the character of God and his great works, there is an intercessor a chosen one. Look again at Psalm 106, 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. In Exodus 32, when God sees his chosen people are committing idolatry against him, his wrath burns and he tells Moses, he'll destroy them. He even tells Moses, forget them, I'll destroy them, I'll make a great people out of you. Moses speaks up at this point and reminds God of the covenant he made with their father Abraham, that he would make a great nation out of Abraham, and is therefore reminding God of his own character. And when he does that, God relents. Isn't that interesting? It's good to know God's character. If you're a believer in this room today, you are God's chosen people, the church. And all of us have committed idolatry against our creator. 
Our greatest hope is that there is a greater chosen one than Moses. God's chosen one would be Jesus, who later came, lived a perfect life, died the death we deserved, raised to life three days, proving that he is God, and is the greater intercessor, saving people from God's burning wrath for what they've done against him. We place our hope in Jesus to plead for us because we never could. But what then is our personal responsibility in idolatry? If you're a believer, you have the ability to change your affections toward God away from worthless idols. I was sitting with a good friend of mine who's brilliant and went to Stanford at the age of 17. But what she usually leaves out of her college experience is she never graduated due to her use of drugs. In her words, it's pretty hard to get good grades when you're high all day. In the morning, she would roll over to her nightstand, grab a joint, and smoke it. Then she'd smoke on the way to class. In the afternoon, followed by more smoking, and absolutely had to have a joint before going to bed at night. I listened to her describe the box she kept her weed in. It was an antique cherry wood with an abalone Japanese-inspired floral design on it. And inside the box, it was lined with a velvet green fabric. I could see a peace come over her as she recounted what it was like to just open the box. She had made a treasure box for her treasure. She would spend most of her time, talent, and money on this idol. I know this friend very well, and she doesn't smoke anymore, so I asked, where's the box? She said, definitively, it's gone. What do you mean it's gone? <laughs> this was so important to you. You couldn't get through college because of it. It took over her life. She said she had found something better. And she gave it up cold turkey without a thought or regret. On the first or second date, she had met who would be her future husband. And he made it known he wouldn't be with anyone who smoked. Friends, our hope of giving up our idols lies with the Son of God, Jesus. When Jesus is the most beautiful to us, we draw close to him and we want to be with him. And the idols of our life then take the rightful place and become the mundane and not worth our worship. Jesus wants to be the aim of your worship. You are his beloved. He wants to walk with you in your pain. He wants to sit with you in your waiting. And he wants to give you blessings you couldn't ever imagine. Jesus is our fountain of living water in the desert. He will satisfy your every need. Believer, don't forsake Jesus, living water who is essential to your life. You might say, Laura, I'm a Christ follower. I worship God on Sundays, but I don't know how to identify idols. I might not have any. You might be saying this. First, I want to say with all love, please don't deceive yourself. 
Believers have idols that need to be put to death on a regular basis. I was just talking to my grandmother, who's 93 years old, and she's been walking with Jesus since she was 17. I was talking to her about this seminar. She said as she's gotten older, she's realized more and more how easy it is to have idols. You'll know an idol in your life is being revealed when someone pokes it and you become angry, discontent, defensive, or depressed. Maybe it's your health in decline and you gave time and money to the God of fitness to make sure one day this wouldn't be your fate. Or it could be a wayward child and you spent your time and talent as a teacher to homeschool to ensure that they would follow after God. It might be a church. You spent your time, talent, and treasure building up, and now they're making changes for this next generation. The bulletin's electronic, and they change the service time, and you don't deserve to feel this uncomfortable. Unfortunately, these are real-life examples of things that, although can be good desires, can take over our motives, behaviors, and actions, rather than making our aim to please God. We're going to take some time to allow God to reveal idols that we have. These can be physical idols, like I mentioned before, uh, food, sex, family, or they can be idols of our heart, comfort, expectations, control. I provided a list for you, so go ahead and look at your handout. This list is not exhaustive, but I want to go over the top three questions for you. For each of these check boxes, I'd like you to ask yourself, am I willing to sin to get this? Number two, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose this? Or number three, do I turn to this as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? So I'm going to, on your own, go ahead, I'll give you a couple minutes to go over this, put, put some check marks on what you believe applies to you, and then we'll come back together.
Okay, let's come back together. If we truly understand our desires, then we can confess those deceitful desires to God before they birth into action. And we, then we can repent and turn from those desires that are of our flesh. You might have been feeding this, these desires for decades, like some of the examples that I mentioned. These are still desires that Jesus can handle, and he already knows about them. He wants to be with you, and he wants your greatest desire to be with him, to be satisfied by the creator instead of the created. We can't do anything on our own, so we need the work of the Holy Spirit to change us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So we're going to take some time to confess idols that you acknowledged on your paper. We confess our sin to be in agreement with God, that we've missed the mark of worshiping him alone. So this time of confessional prayer can look something like this. Um, God, I realize that I've been placing acceptance of others before you. I've been going to it for comfort, and what I really need is your peace. Pray that he would change the desire of your heart to be for him alone, not needing anything else. If you'd like to confess with your partner, you can. If you feel like you're not up for that right now, you can look at your partner and give him the, give him the shoulder, you know? <laughs> like I'm not, this is just for me right now. But I do want to encourage, encourage us, um, as you bring sin to light, there's more room for healing and restoration. So if you're sitting with someone that maybe is from your church that can uh, be a prayer partner for you or an accountability partner, you might want to think about sharing with them and confessing with them before the Lord. So I'm going to give you uh, some time to do that. So you can do it on your own or with your partner. Okay, ladies, ladies, we're going to come back together again. This is wonderful time of confession. We're going to come back together again. I hope you've had time to, I hope you've had time to uh, talk with each other, confess with each other, um, but also confession is a practice that we need in our churches. If there's something there, if there's some sin there, we can't just Okay, let's move on. Let me try to fix it. No, spend time to sit and confess. This is a good practice. You can confess with some people within your church, but also just with the Lord. He knows. Be in agreement with, with your sin with him. All right.
Once we've identified idols in our life, we want to acknowledge that Jesus is better. And like my friend, we do something about it. So this is the practical part of putting our sin to death. If our allegiance is to God, then there has to be action taken. On the next portion of the worksheet, you'll see the idolatry repentance plan of action. It's a very large title. Okay, Uh, this area asks you to be very specific in dealing with your sin. If we're not specific, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to get to the root of our sin. This exercise mirrors the put off, put on that we find in Ephesians 4, 22. Okay, so let's read this together. One, two, three. Number one, be specific and not abstract or vague. Number two, make the goals attainable. Be realistic, ladies. Be realistic. If we make goals for ourselves that we can't hit, you're going to feel defeated and give up. Number three, be positive and not merely negative. Okay? So not merely, I won't be critical anymore, but I will express appreciation for at least two things every day. Okay? Try to be more positive. The Bible talks about replacing sinful behavior, replacing it, not just stopping the bad behavior. So we have to put something in its place. Okay? Um, so let's look at that, uh, your last sheet there. You'll see it says idol number one. Um, so I'm going to go through um, a sample with you. Thinking of actions to put off Uh, I'm going to give the example of I need power in in my workplace, okay? So thinking or actions I could put off for wanting power in the workplace could be micromanaging, belittling my subordinates, drawing attention to my strengths and accolades, keeping information secretive from other people I work with, okay? New ways of thinking about this area of wanting power in the workplace. I might put, I've been given authority to do this job. My employees are also made in the image of God. They don't determine the fate of my job. God does. Okay, so I would put that on. I would want to put that thinking on. And then your last one, new ways of acting in this area. Because it can't just be right thinking. We've got to put it into action. Uh, Regarding power, I could put something like, uh, and make sure they're attainable, encourage one employee every day on their strength. Or maybe starting to think through, um, starting to train someone on portions of my job in, in case something happens to me. Okay? So from your starred idols, um... For that section, pick one. Just pick one of the ones that you put a check next to and start filling out this portion. And it's okay to ask your neighbor for help on this because your uh, your put on is not necessarily going to be the opposite of what you put off. Okay? Your put on can be anything that's righteous or has to do with anything good or service, okay? So we're not merely putting, 
I'm not nearly putting, don't hate my sister anymore, love my sister, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> encourage my sister, bake brownies for my sister, invite her over, you know? So it's not necessarily the opposite. So um, use your partner, people around you to go, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to put on. So ask them a way that you could start thinking rightly and then acting rightly. I'll give you a few minutes and then we'll finish up. Okay, ladies, we're going to bring it back. I love to hear all the chatter because it means that you're thinking and you're working toward goals. You're working toward sanctification. This is just a practical way to do it. So use this worksheet in your journaling. Use it for the other idols that you marked off that you didn't get a chance to uh, Think, how can I do this differently? And then don't be afraid to ask your friends, ask people around you, how do I do this different? How do I start to think about it and act differently? Uh, this portion of the seminar will obviously take you a lot longer. So I just wanted you to get a taste of what it looks like. You know, for those people that aren't here and you came in the same car with them, you could just bring this up during the car ride and they'll have a fantastic time with you. Um, <laughs> surprise. Ladies, did you find this seminar helpful? Good, good. Uh, one thing I need to do before we end in prayer is I need to get this picture for my grandma. Okay, so everybody smile. Perfect. All right. Lastly, I want to return to prayer today. Uh, God is ultimately who we depend on for all things. And as we saw in Genesis, he wants to bless his people. And as we saw in Exodus, he wants his presence to be among us as well. So let's pray. God, there is none like you. And yet you desire to be with your people. And you know that it's good for our souls to worship you alone. God, turn our affection toward the one who makes the lightning and the wind. Change us to be conformed to the image of your son. We humbly submit ourselves in awe that you are worth, worthy of worship. Amen. <laughs>